1: Our guests today are actually fellow podcasters, and we were recently on their show, and we'll link to that, and we were thrilled to be guests, both Kathleen and myself, and we have here as our guests Frank Lavinia and Andy Leonard, who are co-hosts of the Data Driven Podcast. Hi guys, how are you doing?
2: Sure, so this is Frank here. I am a podcaster, as you mentioned, on a Data Driven Show, co-host of the show that we've been going on for nearly two years. My background is of being a software engineer, but about three, four years ago, I kind of saw the Light and realized that big data and AI are where the world was headed. And I went on a certification frenzy to retrain. And currently, well, I work at Microsoft as a technology solutions professional.
3: Cool. This is Andy. And you can tell the difference between me and Frank because Frank has an accent. (laughs) Just just so you know, I speak normally, everybody else talks funny. I am a uh, data engineer, and my title is Chief Data Engineer at Enterprise Data and Analytics. I own the company, and we're a bunch of consultants that work together on all sorts of things. We focus on data engineering, data integration, but we do Power BI, Microsoft's analytics visualization product. And as Frank mentioned earlier, we thoroughly enjoy being co-hosts of Data Driven, and we had a great show with both of you. Thank you for being on our show. And, you know, it'll be out very soon. Probably these shows will come out pretty close to each other, and we'll cross-reference. We'll link to this show from ours, if that makes any sense. Yes. (laughs)
4: Great.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, I know that the, part of the reason why we were on your podcast and you're on ours is just because of the role that data, you know, just plays with respect to artificial intelligence. You know, and many of our listeners already know that, you know, data is integral to the whole idea of implementing AI. And in our work with clients, we know that 80% or more sometimes of the AI machine learning projects are spent just preparing and dealing with data. So, you know, from your guests and from your folks on the show about other insights you have, we'd love to know what your insights are just wrangling data for AI.
2: Well, so this is Frank here, the guy with an accent apparently. Data engineering is essentially the $10 word for wrangling data because these algorithms they're very, I like to call them picky eaters if you will, and they require the data to be just so. And I've actually, when I was doing consulting for a time, I would tell folks that you know you have to schedule time to clean up your data. And a lot of these folks who are new to AI, they kind of, I think they took that up personally. They said, no, 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 all our data is properly normalized. And fortunately it was a voice call so they couldn't see the facepalm. But I refer to it now as data prep or data shaping because I think that people tend to take data cleaning almost as an insult that their data needs to be cleaned. So that's one insight is kind of the perception. But I mean overall the theme is that it's a job that no one really likes doing. Uh, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean the general theme is that it's nothing people like to do, but it's a big part of the job and a big part of the job is not just cleaning the data, but making sure that that data is not biased in any kind of meaningful way. And you can't really escape bias in data because the whole system at which that data was collected does kind of convey some bias, but you can be smart about minimizing that risk.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with what Frank said. And you know, I know that you talk to a lot of people who are on the bleeding edge and doing implementation. Both Frank and I are in that category. Although we are podcasters, we both do the work. And I focus, like I said, on data engineering on that part of it. And in some notes you sent us, you mentioned it was 80%. That's a fair estimate. I led a team of 40 ETL developers when I worked for Unisys about a decade ago. And we were cleaning up Medicaid data for U.S. State. States. And it's a mess. And it's not because people are intending it to be a mess. It just everyone's data is messy by nature. And it's very dirty. And there's mismatches and orphans and missing data. And I've run into a few people that reacted to me the way that folks have reacted to Frank. And I think the big difference is Frank's usually talking to him about the analytics side. He's talking about machine learning and AI, and he's talking to a different audience. I'm talking to people that called because they realized they need help cleaning up their data. And i describe it as data plumbing, almost.
0: We hope you're enjoying this podcast and sorry for the brief interruption. Cognolytica not only produces the AI podcast that you're listening to right now, but we also generate research and advisory to help companies make sense of AI and cognitive technologies.
1: We also run the most authoritative, vendor-neutral AI and machine learning training and certification on the market. If you're looking to make AI a reality for your organization, our three-day Cognolytica training
0: is for you. If you're interested in attending, you can find pricing and registration on our website at cognolytica.com. We'll also provide a link in the show notes. We've met many of our podcast listeners in our classes, and we hope that we'll see you there as well. Now back to the podcast
3: plumbing almost you know we're under the house and you know kind of piping everything together and frank's world is they're doing the paint and the decorations and the window dressing, which it's all important but you really need to get it all right i totally agree with everything frank said but it's interesting and if you get this wrong since it's so foundational if you don't recognize that there's bias if you don't you know realize that everybody's data is dirty you're kind of starting off on the wrong foot and it's hard to correct for that later it may be impossible
2: Or or really expensive, if nothing else. I mean, a stitch in time saves nine, I think, maybe for AI, you know, saves 9,000. Right. right. (laughs) Right.
1: Well as a quick follow up to that, I'm actually curious because you know, as much happens with technology, everything is that's new or as old is new again, right? It's like always the old wine and new bottles. And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, ETL, which has been around forever, right? You know, right. as soon as we've two systems, we had to start dealing with moving data from one system to the other. So do you see anything unique or different about the workloads of the projects that are AI specific than maybe just previous ones where we've had data warehouses and we've had, you know, databases and, and systems for a long time. Is there something unique about the data preparation? And shaping, besides, of course, things that are obviously dealing with modeling, but you know, is there something unique there that maybe is different than the ETL days, or is it pretty much the same?
2: I would say it, for the fundamentals are the same, but I think two things are different this time. One is the tolerance for variance is much lower for these AI algorithms. So I think there's that. And I would think too, is there's much more respect for data now than I think there ever has been. Not that it's been disrespected, but you know I was at a conference recently and they said, you know data is like oxygen for AI. And I think data being treated as a valuable resource is a fairly new phenomenon. I mean, Andy can correct me if I'm wrong or not, but I mean, most companies would just collect data because they had to, or they just didn't know what to do with it. And I think that's a big part of why there's so much inconsistency in a lot of these legacy formats. I mean, I just shudder to think of what those Medicare records, to get that consistent, must have been. Now I know where all the gray hairs come from.
3: Well, I tell you, here's the thing. Some of the data that was collected was the last name, first initial, and birthday. And that works really, really well until you're trying to identify twins. Because if you think about twins you know, they're named like Dave and Dale, right? Same first initial same birthday, same last name. (laughs) They run into things like that all over it. I totally agree with what Frank said. I think data is being treated more as a corporate resource. We use the phrase on data-driven. that data is the new oil. And I think it really is. And it's not that people were dismissing that, but when they start to see what machine learning and AI can bring to the table, I think data is getting more respect in the enterprise now than it did in the past.
4: Yeah, fair enough. You know, and we've also seen that cleaning data is very expensive and can be a quite time-consuming task. So it seems like you guys have been seeing that as well and need to figure out how to politely word that to clients.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and it's challenging because, you know, I mean, I'm not just a data engineer. I'm an engineer by training, and we're known for our gentle and tactful ways of communicating. So <laughs> not so much. Yeah, <laughs>
2: I think he's right. You know, no one wants to hear that their data is ugly. You know, that's why I always like to say, I always like to blame the algorithms if I'm trying to be polite. And as Andy said, as engineers, politeness is kind of our second or third language. <laughs> and no, I just, you know, the, I, I like to say picky eaters because, you know, one of my kids is a picky eater and it's just kind of mm. like things are not presented the right way. Doesn't matter how good that steak or chicken nuggets or whatever it is. Doesn't
4: matter. Yeah, these are really good points. So I'd like to move along to our next question. In Cognolytica's AI-enabled vision of the future, we say that we're going to get to this point where we have pervasive knowledge, and companies and governments will just know everything about us. So right now, we're at the point of pervasive connectivity due to the internet and mobile phones, where it's just assumed that we are always online 24-7 whenever I leave the house. It's assumed that I take a cell phone with me You know, next to my bed. It's assumed that I have a cell phone with me at night. But we're going to move to this idea of pervasive knowledge, which is going to be the assumption that everybody and everything will have knowledge about everyone else. So, you know, what's your take on this? Do you think that we are going to get there? How far away are we from that? What's your thoughts on it?
2: I would say, arguably, we're kind of already there. I mean, I don't know about the government, what the government knows necessarily, but companies like Facebook, we voluntarily give them information and then they kind of mine other sources to get even more information about us. So I would say, and I don't want to just pick on Facebook, there's a number of companies that can collect that type of information. If you think of your cell phone provider, they know where you are, they know the calls you make, text messages that you go through. I think we're kind of already there. And as for what the government knows, you know, the things that John Snowden said prior to his, what he had publicly kind of talked about would have made you seem like a crazy, but here we are. And we're now what, four or five years post Snowden. So I think we're already at pervasive knowledge. We just haven't either known or accepted it yet. What's that thing about the five stages of grief? I think we're somewhere in there.
3: Yep. I totally concur with Frank. I think privacy died a long time ago. We just didn't realize it. And for the exact same reason, Snowden is the, you know, is the best example of that. Prior to that, my tinfoil hat didn't really fit that well, but it's nice and snug these days. I would say the assumption now is that anything that you do that's connected digitally is not private, that there's going to be some record of it, that it's going to be kept. And while I admire you know, the data protection legislation that's being passed, I admire the goal of it, I should say. There's an awful lot that's bringing into the mix that I don't think we've fully worked out yet. I don't think we've thought through all of the implications of that. And just one example of that is, so I request, I'll just use Facebook as an example since Frank brought it up. I say, Facebook, I want you to forget me fine facebook is running you know big data on the back end if they're smart and they are they're doing backups so how do they get me out of their backups
4: Mm, yeah good questions we yeah, talk I think- about this a lot because we bring up the idea of hyper-personalization, and it's not just used for advertising. You know, a lot of people think, oh, for marketing and advertising, but it's going to be this idea that we hyper-personalize everything to the individual, right. and that's this idea of pervasive knowledge where everybody and everything will know exactly where I am. So if I'm at a restaurant and there's a hurricane warning or a tornado warning, it's going to tell me exactly where to go to seek shelter instead of the sirens that, you know, like some towns put off those. People are going to be like, what's that siren? Because now we're going to have this idea that I'm always going to have a phone on with me. I'm always going to have the internet. And it'll tell me exactly where to go to seek shelter.
3: That's a really positive example, I think. And I think all of the next wave of bad things that are going to happen are going to kind of grow out of these good intentions. And I'm not trying to be the prophet of doom or anything, Mm -hmm. but, you know, human nature. I I mean, just
2: historically, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think history will repeat itself, except I think this time around it might be a bit more digital and shinier, but it's still history. Humans are still humans.
1: You know, I'm kind of wondering actually, this is funny because a lot of times I don't want to, you know, paint conspiracy theorists and everything, but like people are always like, we're afraid, like, oh, you know, the government and we're afraid of this. But actually, the question is, are you more afraid of what the government will do with this data or what corporations will do? The funny thing now is, I think that's the big pivot we're seeing is that with data and data privacy, it's not necessarily, you know, the government Uh using information to, Uh Target people or do whatever, but it's more like now these corporations. Which it's interesting because the rule of law applies to everybody in the country, but within the confines of a corporation, there are certain things like you don't actually have like the full freedom of you can't say whatever you want in a corporation environment because they have the right to your time as a worker. You don't have the right to do whatever you want in a corporation because they're paying for your time. So it's kind of funny you're actually more restricted in the corporate environment, but like their use of data is actually less restricted than what the government can do. So I'm wondering you know. Is the balance of concern on the government side or on the corporation side?
2: So in the U.S., I would say the U.S. government does have some kind of accountability to its citizens. Other parts of the world, I think the equation is reversed or neither. But I I think you're right. I think large corporations can do have way more leeway in terms of what they do with our data because the consequences are kind of fuzzy right now. GDPR had a lot of companies like jumping up and down and freaking out for a lot of reasons, good, bad, and kind of indifferent. But I think that was the first shot in a, you know, of a struggle between the protection of the general public versus, you know, kind of this data up until very recently was not considered a key asset. Now it is. So now you have kind of this, I don't want to say land grab, but I mean, it's kind of like a land grab for, you know, who has control over this data data sovereignty, that sort of thing. The internet was kind of built around the idea that information should flow freely. Now we have this notion of data sovereignty. So everybody's trying to get their hands on this stuff.
3: And I agree with everything Frank said, but I worry about both. I'm kind of an all-of-the-above paranoid person because in engineering, paranoia is a virtue. We have to think about things that could go wrong before they go wrong and try to, at a minimum, make them fail gracefully. So I worry about both, and yeah, I don't have any solutions. I laud the you know the, the goals of GDPR and similar legislation. But as I said, I, I'm worried about the implementation. I don't think we've really thought it through yet, and I think it's going to be messier before it gets more stable and, and the, the most good comes out of it. I think it's going to be ugly for the next few years.
1: Yeah, well, we'll kind of related to that, but, but it's sort of in a different direction because I know that a lot of corporations, especially the ones that we're talking to now, they're really looking to put machine learning, into practice. And for very useful, you know, very, very tangible and actually somewhat even boring use cases, you know, like using machine learning for some predictive analytics on some particular problem they're solving or image recognition to do things like, you know, handle insurance claims information or, you know, conversational agents like chatbots and this and that or other things. So these are very, I would say, very mundane but very practical use cases for machine learning. But they're hitting up against some of these very same concerns about the use of data, especially in like loan applications and things like that. So, you know, there has been a a lot of news recently, and some pushback with, with how companies are using corporations' data. And, you know, especially for these companies that are looking at putting these projects, more mundane projects into practice, but are, are dealing with customer data, you know, sensitive data. Like, you know, we know about the Equifax, you know, data breach and the Yahoo data breach and the Target data breach. There's been so many data breaches, right? You can't even keep track of them anymore. So, you know, people are, have that concern with machine learning data and machine learning models. So, you know, what have you heard from some of your podcast guests on the topic of data privacy and, you know, some of these issues around just data stewardship? And, you know, how do you think, you know, corporations and individuals and agencies and anybody who's putting these projects into place, what can they do to like to like to self-regulate or make sure they're not inadvertently causing problems? Or do you think, you know, maybe there needs to be some regulations from the government or rules or laws, just in the same way we've had those laws with data breaches where you had, you know, disclosure of data breaches and mandatory credit reporting, stuff like that. Do you think there's going to be something along those lines? So you know, there's a bunch of questions in there, but it's really about what can people who are listening to this podcast do tangibly to sort of get ahead of this problem? problem if they want to. So
2: I would say, I mean, in terms of the deeper philosophical questions about privacy and regulation, I don't think we've really delved into that because our podcast is meant for engineers and kind of practitioners and people looking to get into that space. However, it does what has come up repeatedly is this notion of ethics. Ethics comes up a lot, and I think we need to have more of a corporate and public focus back on ethics, ethics in regards to data. I don't think this is going to solve itself pretty easily. I think Andy's right. This is going to get much worse and messier before it gets better, because we are in a fundamental shift here. The likes we haven't seen since at least the Industrial Revolution, and some would say back to the agricultural evolution, where it's going to be such a fundamental shift in how economies work and how society kind of organizes itself. I think AI has that power to disrupt every industry at all times, more or less within the same two or three decade time frame. We have not seen that in certainly anyone who's alive today hasn't really seen that. Yeah, I think we have to think back to when industrialization really took over, right? We didn't have child labor laws, right? Because, well, why didn't we need them? Because kids worked on their family farm, right? They didn't, you know, toil away in factories and with no windows or no air or grimy conditions like a factory, right? So it was never thought of, like, why would you need child labor laws? And then suddenly we had factories and it was like, oh yeah, we probably should fix this. I think it's going to be a slow Drawn out process,
3: Andy. Do you want to follow up on that? No, I agree completely with what Frank
1: said. Okay, you say that a lot, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's-
3: Why do? You're a smart guy. Right?
1: You guys, you guys should get a podcast or something together. You know, I
3: know, man. We should start <laughs> a podcast
2: together. No, Andy calls my Back to the Future moment. Mm-hmm. I hit my head like two, three years ago, and I kind of had this vision for a podcast. Oh, and, I, thought um, I was say
1: flux capacitor. All oh, right, okay. It was a flux That's capacitor.
2: It, yeah. yeah, you know, I didn't have. The, I should have had a thing in my head. It would have protected me. But I, you know, what I really needed was, you know, I'm kind of the developer side of things and and into the analytics side. But I needed someone, because you can't do analytics without, there's no advanced analytics without data engineering as a foundation, right? You can't drive that fancy car across the bridge if nobody built the bridge. And that's why Andy and I make a good team on our show.
4: Yeah, great. So I know that you guys have talked to a lot of people, been around for a while. So let's talk about these AI vendors. Who do you see you know, as strategic vendors in the market, also as data engineering vendors? And then who do you think is doing some interesting stuff and who should our listeners watch out for?
2: So this is the point where I should formally announce that I am a Microsoft
1: employee. <laughs> but
2: I would say Microsoft has done a lot of work with AI in this space. Microsoft Research has been doing this for decades. You know, If you look at the ResNet challenge and some of the recent kind of parity with human cognition or something like that, Microsoft has scored very well. But I think the usual suspects, you know, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon as well. Although I think Amazon's efforts in this space are going to be geared towards their Amazon.com store as opposed to kind of services they make available to other enterprises. That's my gut feeling. But I would say I think you're going to have kind of those big kind of names, the big heavyweights. But you're also going to see players like H2O, which is an open source kind of framework for automated ML. But they also have a product, Databricks. Databricks is doing some astounding work. Databricks was founded by the founders of Spark which was itself was kind of an improvement some would say quantum improvement on top of Hadoop and the older big data tools I think we're seeing the vendor landscape is going to blur that line between open source versus kind of premium support on top of open source. Databricks is probably the poster child for that. So that's what I see. I think what really makes AI tick, right, what, what makes it breathe, if you will, is the data. And no one has as much data on the average person as companies like Amazon, Facebook, mm-hmm. Google, et cetera. So I think that's always going to give them a strategic advantage.
3: Yeah, I will say along those lines, it's really difficult to keep up. There's just new announcements coming out almost daily, certainly weekly, where vendors are coming out with, you know, almost quantum breakthroughs or, or really, you know, quantum leaps in new stuff. I like the big cloud vendors. I like what they're doing. I think uh, AWS was first and, and they did an awful lot of things correctly and got out front and stayed out there. If the research that I'm reading is accurate, and I believe it is, Microsoft is growing a lot faster with Azure right now than AWS is, but I believe AWS is still the largest cloud And I work an awful lot with Microsoft technology, so I can't really speak to how it compares to some of the other stuff. With this caveat, Azure seems to be taking an approach of being kind of the the all-of-the-above vendor. So whereas they have a data engineering and integration platform, SQL Server Integration Services has been around for, I don't know, 14 years now. Rather than kind of improve that and make a version 2 or 3 or whatever, they just uplifted and uploaded that to the cloud. They put that platform in the cloud. And what was really interesting is they built another data integration platform, data engineering platform called Azure Data Factory. That's something that they built in the cloud themselves. And then they integrated with Hadoop and Apache Spark and Apache Storm and just a slew of open source projects. They put those in the cloud as well. And again, I don't know specifically who's doing what. I've worked in AWS some, but the majority of my work is in Azure with data integration and I really like that strategy. I think it's the winning strategy. And it, you know, the, again, they weren't the first. Azure wasn't, but they've done a lot of really cool, really good moves. And I forgot to do my disclaimer at the beginning. And it, this is really new news. In fact, it's about six hours old. I am now a Microsoft Data Platform MVP. I was a SQL Server MVP from 2007 to 2012. And I stepped away voluntarily from the program then. But the reasons I stepped away have kind of, been managed, and I was renominated and just got the acceptance Ooh. about six hours
1: ago. Hey, well, congr- fresh. Congratulations. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank there you so go. much.
3: But, you know, and that, that kind of drives my opinion a little, not that I'm favoring Microsoft, <laughs> but that I'm more familiar with what Azure offers. Okay, well, well that makes and sense. And
2: I'll jump in on that, again, as the Microsoft employee in the room. I don't want to be too rah-rah, my company, yay. But, I mean, if you look at a mature industry, like the automobile industry, right, it's hard to imagine an industry more than Mature than not. There's it ultimately boils down to two or three big players, right? Worldwide, certainly in the U.S., you have kind of the big three, right? And then if you look kind of internationally, you know, there's the Volkswagen Group. I don't, I don't think that's their actual name. I forget what their actual name is, but uh, you know, Honda, Toyota, kind of the Mercedes, right? Daimler Benz. You know, once an industry kind of matures, you have less and less smaller players, and then just kind of a couple of big players are left. And then the cycle kind of repeats itself when you have these kind of upstarts like a Tesla that aim to disrupt the entire industry, and then it all. Kind of uh-huh. recycles itself, reboots itself, if you will.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the interesting trends that we noted, actually, we did a little predictions podcast, in twenty twenty nine predictions podcast for those of our listeners may remember it. if you haven't, you should go back and listen to it. Where cool. we said like two big trends for this year, because so many companies and people are, are getting into machine learning and, and AI and just and implementing it. And of course, you know, a lot of, we just talked about all the hard parts, which are the data, you know, building, uh, creating models, and doing all that sort of stuff. But now we're starting to see shortcuts, right? And so one of those big shortcuts is the pre trained model, right? So, you know, you might have to do some image recognition thing for a particular application, but you can get a pre-trained model that's like trained on cars or bags or whatever or cats or people, right? And then you can basically use transfer learning to say, okay, well all I got to do now is just add my specific images. I don't have to train the whole model on just what's a human face and facial recognition. It can just, you know, glom onto it through the magic of transfer learning. And also the other one is the big movement towards something called AutoML, which is, you know, systems that can automatically do algorithm selection or hyperparameter tuning, all that sort of stuff so you're not sitting there trying to like, you know, make these things work, right? <laughs> Between the two of them, it's like really jumpstarting, kickstarting a lot of projects. But that brings another, like one of those platform issues, because now some of these platform vendors are saying, well, we have all, it's not just that we have the algorithms and the cloud computing and the storage and all these little, you know, tools. We also have these models that we've already built that are kind of proprietary, right? Amazon's got one right. for forecasting and all sorts of stuff. I think their uh, recommendation system or personalization system. And so that we believe that's going to start to really differentiate these vent- Have you been seeing much around the pre-trained models and the AutoML stuff?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Microsoft has a whole suite of things called cognitive services that you don't even have to know anything about AI. You're just a regular developer can kind of implement the computer vision models we've created. There's also, we also have a transfer learning service called custom vision service. But you're right. I mean, it's like, you know, it's going to be instead of saying with the cloud phase it was kind of like well, we have more servers, we have faster servers, we have better network connections. Now it's going to be like, well if you're trying to recognize, you know, cats in a picture versus dogs or hot dogs or not hot dogs, you know, then, you know, our models the best, right? So I think you're going to see more specialization built on top of that.
3: Yeah, and I would say that it's almost a case of meta-automation, right? And we had an interesting guest on, Mark Tabadillo. He was one of our early guests, and he made this point that the people that are doing data science and machine learning and working in this field are most familiar with data science and machine learning. So what's most likely to get automated first is what we do for a living.
2: That's true. Particularly the aspects of the jobs we don't like. Exactly.
4: Uh, Oh, guys, you know, thank you so much for being on this podcast. This was really great. So, you know, as a final question, we always like to end our podcast to kind of hear what each of you believe is the future of AI in general and its applications to corporations and beyond.
2: Wow. So I would say AI is uh, kind of hinted at this. I think AI is going to fundamentally transform economies, good ways and bad ways. I think if you look at the future of the self-driving car, I think even if it is 10 years out, it's still going to impact transportation, the transportation industry, not just in the obvious ways, not just the taxi drivers, not just delivery truck drivers or the long-haul truckers. But if there's no long-haul truckers, there's no need for truck stops right one of the things that i'm a big believer in is the power of unintended consequences so we do these kind of like quick form podcasts live on the scene with facebook live and i think andy and i were talking about this and then i just happened to see a circle k right and it's like you know something is strange afoot at the circle k <laughs> is that before the rise of the automobile society right that required the rise of oil being a universally available commodity right that led to refineries which then led to do a lot of steps in between right people driving cars everywhere at least Least in the US. But then that led it into something like the convenience store. So who could go back a hundred years ago and say, you know what, there's going to be this thing called a convenience store and you'll be able to buy Slurpees and you'll be able to buy, you know, hot dogs and sodas and coffee any time of the day or night while you refill your car, right? I think that's an industry that just kind of came out of, I mean, obviously retail and food existed before, but that combination of all those factors created an industry that is pretty sizable. And I think if we start rolling back on the transportation industry, which I think is inevitable one way or the other in terms of being more automated, that's going to have all sorts of unforeseen consequences that, you know, if you go to ahead to, you know, 2119, there's going to be things that people will say, you know what, I bet in 2019 they didn't see this coming. Right.
3: I would think, you know, more automation, but I used the term meta automation earlier, and it's because I'm seeing it, you know, code that writes code. And when we think about how we think about writing code in 2019 as we're doing this recording is fundamentally changing. It's, you know, the algorithms now are doing the piece of the work that we developers used to build. And I see that not just continuing to grow linearly, I see that accelerating. You know, I've been an observer of this. I've been working in computers since 1975. I'm old. And I was a kid in 75. But watching these generations upon generations of, you know, going from the hobbyist computers. So people wanted a computer in 1975. They either had to go to a college that had a computer or they had to build one themselves. And, you know, kind of watching this all mature, I think what we're in for is automation that automates automation. I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but, you know, if I could export the picture in my head and send it to you, it would be very cyclical and multidimensional. Yeah,
1: well, we've already started seeing some of this. We just talked about some of the stuff that's AI and machine learning related. But, like, even on the just traditional application development side, there was something I saw posted on, I think it was on Hacker News, if anybody reads that. It's something called dry.io, which is this, this system system where it's basically just to just knows what various programming patterns are. And it just says, okay, what are you trying to build? Like, okay, well, here it is. Here's the pattern that, you know, add things to the database or, you know, integrate with the social media site and just basically describe what you're trying to do. And it kind of posts it all together, which is interesting. And of course, you know, for programmers, they know that dry is an acronym and it means don't repeat yourself, right? So it's, it's a programming pattern. And so they're like, well, you know, pretty much anything that's been developed has been developed in terms of the kinds of apps. So don't repeat yourself. Just tell us what you want to build, and we'll just hammer that out, which is interesting. Yeah, people well, have you seen Sketch to
2: Code, which <laughs> yeah, is crazier?
1: Yeah, oh, that's right. I saw that, like, build the user yeah. interface just by sketching it. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's cool, though. I like that one. No, I meant crazy in a good way. Crazy cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah. As one, I, I like to watch a lot of chess videos now, and there's this really funny guy, and he goes, it's crazy like a fox, not like Fox News, so it's really funny. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. Well, guys, this has been amazing. We obviously, we'd love to have you back, perhaps on a future show. We're definitely going to recommend our listeners to listen to the Data-Driven Podcast, and then we're going to provide some links there. Kathleen will talk about that. So first, just wanted to thank you, Frank and Andy, so much for joining us on this podcast. We really appreciate your participation and your insight. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
4: Yeah, guys. Thanks for joining us today. And listeners, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, as well as a link to both our show, where we were guests on the Data Driven podcast, and a link to their podcast as well. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.
0: And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter, and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com.